Hello, and welcome to episode 242 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with... Jason Rabinowitz and Ian, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Got a great show this week. Yeah, we're all over the place from Dubai to Amsterdam to FAA headquarters to... I think we're touching every continent this week. We're touching all seven continents this week on the podcast. And I think we need to begin right in your backyard and check in with the Boston Center air traffic controllers. And I'm referring to an incident that happened earlier this week when a Air Atlanta Icelandic flight had an unruly passenger on board. And I want to play you a little bit of the air traffic control audio, courtesy of our good friends at liveatc.net. So have a quick listen. Atlanta 4592, guys. Yes, sir. Uh, We are a cargo plane. We have live animal horse on board the airplane, and the horse managed to escape his stall. We don't have a problem as of flying-wise, but we need to return back to New York. We cannot get the horse back secure. Jason, yes, that's not the usual radio call that you get. No, no, that's quite the unruly when you have an unruly passenger. passenger. <laughs> I mean, usually when we see these unruly passengers, they're subdued or improperly duct taped to a seat, or they fall asleep, like on my recent Spirit flight. <laughs> this is a little different. Quite an interesting story. I'm sure something like this has probably happened before, but my takeaway here is. The communication back and forth between ATC and the pilots was pretty fantastic, I'd say. I mean, it was the thing that gets me about all of these incidents and and the thing that I'm always called back to. And we'll touch a little bit more on the professionalism of air traffic controllers a little bit later in the show. But the professionalism and the complete nonchalance of the pilots and the air traffic controllers. There's a horse running around the back of a 747. The horse weighs the better part of, I guess we'll take the average and call it a half a ton. And that's a lot of weight to be throwing around an airplane, even an airplane as large as a 747. And I mean, if you're the pilots, first of all, as long as you don't have control issues, you just want to get on the ground and deal with it then. But the, you know, hey, we got a horse. It's not paying attention to directions. It's not following the directions of a crew member. It is disregarding the flight attendants and the (laughs) seatbelt sign. (laughs) The seatbelt sign. We left the seatbelt sign on on purpose, and this is what happens. But yeah, they said, hey, we got to go back to JFK. We're going to dump 20 tons of fuel. And when we're done with that, we would like directions back to JFK. And please have the vet meet us because- the horse is distressed. And if you're a horse traveling inside of a 747, I can understand how leaving your stall and then being confused as all get out while trying to figure out where you are and what is happening. Yeah, I could see how that would would make you a little nervous if you were the horse. Yeah. Transporting live animals like this is a very specialized thing. I think there are actually entire subsets of some airlines that specialize in this. I think Kalita has a subgroup that specializes exactly in transporting horses from A to B. So it's a difficult thing. I mean, these are, as we just said, these are extremely large animals that may not always do exactly what you want to do. And it sounds like in this case, maybe a latch wasn't secured or maybe the horse figured it out and got out. But good. Yeah, we we don't know how many horses there were, and were they in cahoots? Was this a conspiracy? We don't know. They they wanted to go back to JFK. They really like it here in New York, and they wanted to come back. But we don't know the outcome. We assume, hopefully, everything was okay. JFK. There has been no reporting. Otherwise. And the pilots did request a vet on arrival at the ramp, which is actually something that is a thing at JFK. I believe it's called the ARC, where animals being transported go in or out from that, basically an animal terminal that they do have vets on staff, I believe, might be, I don't know if they're on staff or contracted, but if they're going in or out of any airport in the Northeast, that's probably the airport they want to be doing that, which might be why they diverted back to JFK and they didn't go to to Boston or somewhere else a little closer because they were quite a bit out there already. They were over Martha's Vineyard dumping fuel, so they were quite a ways. I, I did find it funny that ATC directed them out eastward to dump fuel to then double back to come west to get back to JFK, but got to do what you got to do. And 
yeah, just really fascinating to hear that play back and forth between ATC and the pilots. Just another day, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that the controller tried to follow up later on, but they were probably dealing, you know, if it was the beginning of their shift or not the end of their shift, I mean, they probably had another couple hundred flights to deal with that day. Yeah, it probably explains why. And I haven't really listened to ATC in New York in quite a while, at least extensively. Man, the, the speed at which the arrivals controller was talking was Yeah, was I found that very interesting because that also caught my ear too. Because the idea is that the controllers speak in such a way that it is understandable, that you can understand the directions. I am a native English speaker. And I barely understood his directions. And yet the pilot on the flight understood every one of the commands. I don't know if this was a recording clarity issue. Maybe we're not getting the full fidelity of this antiquated analog signal, but they they didn't skip a beat. But I'm listening to this like, I know what he said, but not I know what he's saying here. Like there is a call sign and then an altitude and then a speed, maybe a heading, but some of the commands I didn't fully understand. Like I knew he was saying things, but I didn't hear like the altitude assignment or the speed assignment. But the bless him, the pilot of that flight had no issue comprehending what the controllers were saying. That's experience for you. Yeah. And these pilots, they were flying. So Air Atlanta Icelandic is a mostly cargo. They do have some passenger aircraft, but mostly cargo airline. This was flying for network aviation, but they're Air Atlanta Icelandic pilots. And I'm sure the horses probably aren't even on the top 10 list of strangest or most unusual things that they've transported in their careers. So I'm sure this was just, I mean, maybe not just another day at the office, but it sure sounded like just another day at the office when you listen to the full audio there. So good on them for getting back. A few things that people brought up kind of on social media to us that I think we've definitely talked about a little bit before, but the fuel dumping took place at 22,000 feet. So at that height, the fuel is going to aerosolize before it hits the ground. So there's not going to be fuel kind of reaching the ground as fuel. I know that was concern for the fine people in Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. And the other thing was, oh, somebody pointed out that there was a not tabloid publication that said the aircraft plunged what? Thousands of feet. I mean, no. yes, they were instructed to descend from, I think they made it up to 33,000 feet was the max height or max altitude or 31,000 feet. They made up to 31,000 feet was the maximum altitude. And then they were instructed to descend back down to flight level 220. So back down to 22,000 feet, basically getting the aircraft out of everyone else's way so that they could return to New York. They didn't want them flying in anyone else's way. So yes, 31 down to 22 is a big descent, but it, there was no plummeting. There was no plunging. There was no precipitous anything. I just thought that was like, why? The horse story is good enough. You don't need to make it like the horse grabbed the controls of the plane and plunged the aircraft towards the sea. That's not I what mean, happened. Maybe we don't know that. We, right? we That's true. We don't know. We don't know how no, many no, horses we were know involved horses in this. Horses can fly airplanes. It's never been done. It's, it's, someone's going to email us and been like, no, actually, they well, tested this time. in the 50s. <laughs> what didn't they do? If you know of any horses flying any planes, please email us at podcast at fr24.com. Yeah, that inbox is going to stay empty, I think. Probably. Let us kind of continue our discussion of air traffic controllers, but switch gears to the report that came out today. It was submitted to the FAA by the National Airspace System Safety Review Team. We spoke with a member of the safety review team, Robert Sumwalt, who's the former chair of the NTSB, before they commenced their work earlier this summer. And we asked him at the time, you know, what are you going to look at and what's going to be the point? And he said, we're going to look at everything and we're going to come up with some recommendations for making things better. That's exactly and what they did. That's exactly what they did. I've had time to go through the report and I'm still just kind of agog. There, there's a lot. There is a lot. I pulled out some excerpts and there's some good, some frightening, some bad. They dropped some hard truths in here. They did not hold back. 
they are not government employees. They are not writing this as the FAA. They are writing this for the FAA, making recommendations. They start that going, generally, the SRT, which is the safety recommendation team, I guess, found that the ATO, which is the air traffic organization, operates a robust and well-functioning safety management system. An integrated collection of policies, procedures, and programs used to manage safety risk in the provision of air traffic management, navigation, and surveillance services. The ATO also enjoys a just safety culture where employees feel free to report safety issues without fear of reprisal or discipline, and voluntary safety reporting programs are in use and reporting valuable insight into the operation. This is good. This is saying that the FAA and the U.S. air system, specifically the FAA, has a good safety culture in that people are not afraid to report safety issues. Pilots are not afraid to report safety issues, and they do quite a bit. This is great news, that no one is afraid that they're going to be reprimanded or disciplined if they bring a safety lapse up to management's attention. That's great. That is one of the most positive things you can see here. It kind of takes a, well, let's pull a quote from that not tabloid before. It kind of plummets from there, Ian, doesn't it? I mean, I've got a paragraph here that I think kind of sums up where we're headed. I bet we pulled the same paragraph. Through through the intensive process? Is that the paragraph you're thinking No, it's a different one, actually. Ah, okay. You shoot and then I'll shoot. This is the letter from the safety review team. We're not even in the summer yet. To Administrator Whitaker, who has recently taken the reins of the FAA. And they say, through this intensive process, which was the process of working through all of this information, all of the data, all the analyses and, and everything like that. Through this intensive process, the SRT identified several significant challenges that inject risk into the national airspace system. And I think that's the important thing here is that the overriding theme of this is things are done in such a way or situations exist in such a way that we're taking what should be much safer situations and injecting risk into them because of poor policy choices or because of poor implementation or because of lack of funding. And I'll get back into the quote and say, and quote, we are making recommendations to address the areas of process integrity, staffing, facilities, equipment, and technology. Recommendations are also made regarding inadequate, inconsistent funding because of its criticality to affecting meaningful change in other areas. Who knew that if you provided people with money to do the things that you've asked them to do, they will be able to do those things. Ah, yeah. But part of that is spending the money wisely, uh-huh. which really hasn't been a theme at the FAA in the past couple decades. Now, the summary of recommendations breaks down into four distinct categories, process integrity, staffing, facilities, equipment, and technology, and funding. Some of these are easily solvable. Throw money at the problem, throw political will at the problem, and, and problems just kind of go away. But the rest of these are pretty major. They're simple. I don't they're, know if they're easy. Eh, yeah, they're, they're simple <laughs> topics, but they're not sure. easy solutions. But let's go with process integrity because it's number one on their list. There are a lot of problems there. Their recommendations, there are five, establish an AOV as dual reporting entity. There's a lot of jargon here. There's a lot of It goes on about a lot of stuff. But what it boils down to, and I pulled this quote out, this quote I think sums it up very well. Maintenance and sustainment of the ATO's internal processes and systems are challenged by a lack of adequate staffing and funding. Limited organizational capacity is devoted overwhelmingly to air traffic management. While this is an appropriate prioritization of resources, it detracts from other, sometimes longer terms, safety critical areas, such as safety system deployment and maintenance, training oversight, and the monitoring of process integrity. This generates an accumulation of deficits and can ultimately affect the management of risk in the system. And that's exactly what you said, that they are injecting risk that need not be there into the FAA because processes are messy, they're sloppy, things are really not, it's not a well-oiled machine and that creates risk where there just shouldn't be. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to read it, but if you want to, it's fascinating. The things they call out and the recommendations they make, especially if you follow things as closely 
as Jason and I do, and hopefully bring some of this to our audience. We've linked it in the show notes. And I'm also, as I work my way through everything, trying to understand exactly where the recommendations are coming from, because there's a lot of backstory to each and every recommendation. There'll be a longer form blog post, hopefully up by, we're recording Wednesday, it'll hopefully be up by Friday as well to go along with the podcast, if you're interested in, hey, in Get, get this guy some coffee, because it's, yeah. <laughs> it's going to take a while. There are a couple more things I want to pull out here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one from each of these. And we talked about this earlier and said, what? I want one name some mm-hmm. names, but interesting tidbits. The committee here goes on to say that ATC buildings are aging poorly with no replacement plan. When these buildings age, they break down, things go wrong. That creates more AT0 incidents as air conditioning breaks and fire suppression systems break, or in Chicago's case, someone tries to burn down the building. Slightly That's different. problem. Slightly different, but there's no plan to replace these buildings. Some of them, they said if you start replacing every ARTCC building, I believe, once a year, Every year, starting in 2025, by the time you're done, some of these buildings will be a century old. That's a problem. The older a building gets, the harder and more expensive it is to maintain. The next one, I think we talked about this a little bit. They go on to say that ADSB, which is all near and dear to our hearts at this sure. podcast, of course, and GPS performance-based navigation, they were designed to lessen the dependence of legacy navigation and surveillance would be primary radar. The old school way of keeping track of aircraft was by radar. It was supposed to be supplemented or replaced by ADSB. That hasn't really happened. And I quote, the FAA has not been able to capitalize significantly on the potential of these technologies because politically powerful users have not obtained the equipment or modified their operations to enable them to stop relying on legacy navigation systems. The FAA has consistently been prohibited from restricting airspace or even parts of it to users equipped to utilize the FAA's most efficient technology. So this, I think, is particularly interesting. They go into a a back and forth about ADS-B in versus ADS-B out and how the promises of NextGen and ADS-B just really haven't materialized because FAA hasn't been able to sunset its antiquated old radar or beacon technology. It hasn't been able to really see the benefits of NextGen because not all users of the airspace are required to use it. And they point specifically to the military, which I think is interesting because if this report were written by the FAA itself, I don't think we would have really seen them calling out the military like that. But this is an independent panel charged by the FAA to do this. So really interesting to see that kind of truthfulness coming out of it saying, hey, there are political forces at play here preventing the FAA from being as efficient as it could be. Yeah. And it's really interesting that the efficiency feeds into the funding issues because now you have all of these legacy systems that need support that no longer have a manufacturer. The manufacturer has been merged into, you know, it was built by who knows what that and now that, has eight that different owners coming up 10 years later in this report. Or, or 20 years later or 50 years later for some of these. Some of these things are so old that spare parts don't exist anymore. And, and the, and the FAA make worse, can't make their own. <laughs> they can't make their own because they don't have the rights to do that. So literally, there are things that they cannot repair because not only does the part not exist, but they can't even make their own, which is just wild. And so they've had to spend $700 million on the ADSB rollout, which has been extremely useful, as this report points out, in the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska where radar coverage has always been sparse. And then they still need to support all of these, and and the report is keen to call this out, rarely used ancient systems that they've been forced to continue to maintain. So money that they could be spending to redo other systems or upgrade buildings or hire more qualified ATCOs. That's not being used in that way because it's being used to maintain all of these legacy systems. I mean, so it really just starts to pile up as there are so many things that could be done and that should be done that are being held back to where you know you're ending up with you're spending on three separate legacy systems because you have politically connected users, the military, you know, with congressional mandates saying, "Oh no, you need to keep these going." Yeah. Some of the aspects of this report are kind of scary. There's no real 
answers. This report was not designed to create answers or come up with answers, but there's just a lot of uncertainty here of, hey, the FAA is really dependent on ancient technology that is ridiculously expensive to keep operational. Forget about enhancing it. Just keeping it operational is a daily battle. And even if we start replacing this stuff now, some of the equipment seems like it's going to be in service for a century at this rate without really having a firm replacement plan. And this goes to some of the back and forth of the FAA or really government procurement would rather rip and replace everything instead of incrementally improving what they have, which really is disappointing that so much of their old technology has had to be kept in service. But if you really want to dig into this 52-page report, we will, and they have all of the appendixes and all of the breakdowns of what the terminology is. If you want to read it, we will link to it. But grab a drink. It's going to take a while. I'll sum it up with one of the concluding lines from the report. Quote, At current funding levels, the FAA has insufficient resources to carry out its portfolio of responsibilities. I mean, name a government organization that doesn't have that problem. It's just, it's not usually so in your face to the general public as it is here with the FAA. And you would think that one organization that was critical to safety and so publicly focused might receive better treatment from appropriations, but I guess that's not the case. No. I would like to say I just love how straightforward and how truthful they were in this report. I mean, even so, they say, in some respects, the challenge of aging equipment was worsened by the FAA's NextGen initiative, which was announced in 2007. Like, There are ways that NextGen actually made things worse, which is just, we really got to take stock of what's going on here at the FAA. Because the new administrator has his hands full, let's say that. And the FAA responded to the submission of this report by saying that they welcomed the team's findings and they look forward to exploring the report more. I bet they do. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some folks who have probably been fired by now. But this report from Russian investigators certainly is not going to help their case. No, not at all. Jason, what did Russian investigators call the actions of the crew of the Ural Airlines fight that landed in a field because they ran out of fuel? Apparently, the term used was unreasonable, which is not a term you throw around too lightly. Apparently, the Russian investigators have issued a preliminary report that they said the crew acted unreasonably in their diversion to divert, having incorrectly estimated the fuel required after failing to take into account the aircraft's extended landing gear. They also went on to note that, yeah, the aircraft could have landed just fine at its original destination airport. There was no reason to divert. Diverting was unreasonable given the circumstances of the landing gear and I think all the flaps and slats being deployed. It was in its landing configuration with the hydraulic system out due to a seemingly just run-of-the-mill hose broke situation. But diverting and ditching did not need to happen, especially ditching at a field. None of this should have happened. And we will await the Russian investigation's final report, which who knows how long that could take. But the initial report here, the preliminary report, deemed it an unreasonable action by the crew, which I think anyone really looking at this situation from day one, we all jumped to the same conclusion because none of this seemed correct. None of it lined up. And sure enough, this should not have happened. And the the praise, as I said initially after this happened, the praise for the crew in this situation should probably have been tempered a bit because they put themselves in that situation, except for the cabin crew. Hats off to them. They deserve whatever applause and hopefully bonuses came their way. There you go. Well, in a normal week, without any unruly horses, we probably would have started the show with this news. We had but bigger, we've finally gotten to the Dubai Air Show. Not saying it's not an important no, air no. show. And there were a lot of orders. Let's be clear. Yeah. This was Boeing's show and Airbus was just along for the ride. They showed up. They showed up. 297 Boeing airplanes ordered, 61 oh. Airbus, and 20 ATRs. Oh, that's cute. Emirates going 
with top billing for a top-up order of 90 firm orders, though we can discuss how firm firm orders are to Emirates in a bit, 777Xs, 55 777-9s, and 35-8s. So that's kind of the headline order there, though there are some interesting orders. I think Ethiopian Airlines' first max order since the crash a few years ago, ordering 20 firm plus 21 options. Ethiopian also choosing 11 A350-900, so adding to its fleet there. Let's see what else is Egypt Air. Egypt Air, yeah. A350-900s. It seems like Egypt Air just wants to operate every aircraft type. They're the new Lufthansa, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. Sket ordering seven 737-8s. Emirates apparently ordered five more 787s. I didn't see that before. They did. Just just a little top up. Just Yeah, just a little, little something on the top. But to me, the most interesting order by far, forget the 777X, forget the 20 Done. top up order for the A220 for Air Baltic. That's interesting, Done. but they only have A220. So what else are they going to order? What is by far the most interesting is the 3787-9s for Fly Dubai. That is by far the most interesting order subjectively to me, probably objectively. Fly Dubai only operates 737s. I believe only the- Not for long. Yeah, only the 800, the MAX 8 and 9. They may have had mm-hmm. a couple 700s. I don't know. But it, it's exclusively an all Boeing 737 airline right now. But these are new orders. These are not shifted over from Emirates or anything. This is a fresh order for 730, 787-9s. And it really changes the game for Fly Dubai as an airline. And we've seen this before with the likes of WestJet going for the 787 or Norwegian going for the 787 when it was primarily a, a short, medium-haul 73 operator. But in this case, it is going to be particularly interesting for Fly Dubai because they are in such a position where they could operate pretty much anywhere in the world out of Dubai with these aircraft. And it's going to be exceptionally interesting to see how it either supplements the existing Emirates network or adds on to maybe destinations that Emirates doesn't fly to with wide body capacity. This is going to be one really interestingly to keep an eye on for a number of years. I don't know when they're taking delivery of these aircraft. I don't think it's going to be tomorrow or anytime in the immediate future, but it's going to be an interesting one to watch. Yeah, I think the other interesting bit about this is that it also opens up cargo to fly Dubai. Having been an all 737 operator continuing up until the delivery of the first of these aircraft, they don't really have any cargo capacity. And now with the 787s, it not only gives them a wide body fleet, a healthy wide body fleet too, 30, I mean 30 firm orders, then opens up a cargo market for them in a market that is certainly already a healthy cargo. I mean, Dubai is certainly a healthy cargo market. So it'll be interesting to see how those 787s get used for a variety of reasons. And it'll be nice to see what they do with them. Also, what do they do with the cabin? Is it, you know, because Fly Dubai has a very nice 737 cabin. They also have some very Spartan 737 cabins. Sure. That's the interesting thing with, with Fly Dubai. They range anywhere from maximum capacity 189 seat 737 800s to 737 Max 9s with full flat seat, multiple different types of full flat premium cabins. So we don't know how they're going to outfit their 787s. What we do know is that it's going to be fun to watch. And I'm excited for that. I'm excited as well. Yeah. Let's talk about some other news that came out of the show. Uh, Tim Clark was speaking. So, of course, there was just absolutely brilliant quotes come out of that man's mouth. And I mean that both in a semi-facetious way, but also in a legitimately awesome way. His take on the industry is always one that I'm keen to hear. Well, now that Akbar Al-Baker is no longer the CEO or the head honcho of Qatar Airways, he's sure. probably the most outspoken, most uh, listened to head of an airline, I would say. I don't know if there's anyone who knows the business quite like Tim Clark knows the business. And he was speaking on a variety of issues, but I, I took his comments about the A350-1000 to be particularly interesting. Basically, Emirates, because there was a soft expectation, I think, that Emirates might place an order for the A350 at the Dubai Air Show, and they didn't. And Clark says, the airplane's not good enough. 
It's just simply Ooh, not good enough for what we need to take. do. It Read needs the, the, the <laughs> well, I'll, I'll get there. The aircraft needs to have better engines. The engines need to have more time on the wing. The maintenance cost needs to be to be right at that amount of time on the wing. And it probably needs more thrust. So he's talking about the Rolls-Royce Trent XWB97, which powers the A350-1000. He was not critical of Qantas's choice for the A350-1000 for the Project Sunrise flights, but laid out the physics, I guess, or the engine performance requirements behind that choice and said, look, those engines are going to be working really hard. And if we worked the engines that hard in the environment in which Emirates operates, it would not work for us. And we would probably lose we would lose three quarters of the time. They would last a quarter as long as we need them to. And here's the quote. Quote, we whack these airplanes around the skies full up all the time. End quote. He's not wrong. The utilization of Emirates is quite high and the operating conditions in Dubai are kind of as extreme as they get, I would say. So yeah. Then again, he is also the same person that is still rallying Airbus to do an A380neo, which is not going to happen. So this, this seems like a bit of bluster, but maybe not. It's interesting. One could argue that a higher thrust Trent XWB put on the wing of the A380 could really be what he's after for the long term. Maybe. He's not going to get it, but maybe – I want to hear his take on the Pratt and Whitney GTF issues because if he's saying this about the A three fifty one thousand, I can't imagine what he would be saying about the GTF issues, of which does not impact Emirates in any way. I guess so. They're off the hook there. But if he's not happy with Airbus's latest pride and joy, I, I can't imagine he'd have too too many positive things to say about the A two twenty or the A three twenty series right now. Yeah. The only other thing I wanted to talk about as far as the Dubai Air Show goes is Jason wrote off Air Baltic because they have A220s and, and they ordered some more. But I want to point out for just for milestone's sake that this order brings them over or to 100 aircraft in the fleet. And CEO Martin Gauss has said that that's their goal is to get to a 100 aircraft fleet. And I don't care about that other than the fact that by the time Air Baltic has 100 aircraft, they might be able to wet lease them out to 100 different airlines for a season. They would need to wet lease 100 airplanes themselves. And so that could just be fascinating to see where those aircraft end up actually flying if Air Baltic has that many oh, aircraft to play with. One thing we did not get at the Dubai Air Show is the mythical, mm. rumored, long, not appearing order for Airbus airplanes from Turkish airlines. That is still... Uh, Pending board approval, maybe or something. Maybe I don't know something. It didn't happen. It will happen at some point, apparently, but it will not be at the Dubai Air Show. We wait for Farnborough, I guess next year. It'll happen soon, but yeah, we'll just have to keep waiting because that order has been kicked around for a while now. We'll continue to wait and see. The Dutch government has said, "Ah, we were just kidding. You can keep all your slots and flights and." Don't pay any attention to us. You know what instills confidence in the traveling public? Flip-flopping. Mm. I just love when a government meddles in a thing and then says, no, you can't fly here. We're cutting our flights. No, just kidding. We didn't really mean any of that. Uh, this whole situation is just bonkers. But apparently, the reduction in slots will not come into effect in the 2024 summer season, to which many airlines are very happy about, including JetBlue, who will apparently not be exiled from Amsterdam. They applied quite a bit of pressure with the USDOT, so we, we don't really know what spurred the reversal from the Dutch government here. But I did want to point out that it is just bizarre, the, the communication coming out of Schiphol here, who seems to really be rallying for this reduction in flight. The airport itself, yes, has really been rallying. Counter to its goal of being an airport, the whole thing is a little confusing. And the quote here is, the government's experimental regulation is being suspended. This means that the maximum of nearly half a million flights no longer applies. We are disappointed by this development, seeing as the regulatory scheme gave local residents clarity and certainty. So here we are with an airport saying, we are disappointed that more flights are going to happen. It's really, I think, a unique situation where I, I can't name any other airport in the world that's saying, oh, man, we got 
we're getting all these flights back. This is disappointing. Like this is usually their goal to increase the number of flights sustainably. Not saying we're disappointed that more flights are going to, or the same number of flights as last year is going to happen. The whole situation is just really quite bizarre. So what happened in the last few weeks, we talked about the DOT approving the complaints. The EU also warned the Netherlands that they would be bringing a complaint in, I guess, I don't know enough about EU parliamentary governance, but apparently there is a a time period when you can complain. That's every day for me. (laughs) The European Commission was warning the Netherlands that they would not be in compliance with European regulations. Basically, the open skies agreements that the EU has with the US in particular. And so it seems like that pressure is what made the Netherlands back off, both the US and the FAA telling Dutch airlines to, hey, you, you need to let us know what your plans are so we can screw with them. And then the European Commission basically saying, don't do that because it violates our regulations and then you'll get in trouble with us too. And so it seems that the Dutch have walked that back. The stated goal was to reduce the noise at the airport by 15%. And KLM said, we're going to do that with new aircraft. Just give us a decade. Yeah. And so like that argument doesn't really hold a lot of water. But the idea of just unilaterally cutting thousands of flights in a single season without really any backup plan seemed to be unworkable from the beginning. So- We'll see what happens next, I guess. What is a little disappointing here is that it's not just the flight cap restriction being overturned or, or rethought. It's everything else that they wanted to do, which they said is a part of was a part of their eight-point plan. And so they won't be able to move forward also with the ban on private flights, the ban on noisiest aircraft, and the night closure of the airport. So it is a little disappointing that they're not able to stick it to the private aviation sector. Less so for, I think we talked about this, banning the noisiest aircraft, most of which didn't even exist anymore. Or or it was just a weird list with things like the AN-225 can't fly to Skipple anymore when Russia blew up the only example. So a little odd there. But the entire plan is now kaput rather than just the flight cap. So that's a little disappointing because anytime you limit uh, private aviation, I'm, I'm a little excited because it's not fair. They, they've taken up all our slots like that. <laughs> Let's go back across the Atlantic Ocean over to Toronto, where an Air Canada flight landing from Tokyo's Haneda Airport encountered Read the words in the show notes. We have it listed in the show notes as Air Canada's wibbly wobbly landing. There and I think that's an apt description. I don't know what else to say about it other than I don't know if there will be a report or, or anything issued because nothing really happened. The aircraft is is went back into service the next day as it normally does in its rotation. Coming in from Haneda, came in as AC2, went back out as what, what AC1? Just kind one. of went yep. right back out. Went uh, back to, to one. Normally, so it may not have even been a hard landing. It was probably a stone's throw away from potentially being a very nasty situation. If could have been looking at an Asiana situation at, at SFO, where if the wing dug into the ground, that aircraft was going to have a bad day. But all's well that ends well, and potentially, don't want to jump to conclusions, but potentially, kudos to the crew for really wrangling that aircraft back into control. Because if you skip a few frames. You wouldn't even know anything happened. No. So I don't know if we'll see a report. Like Jason said, there was nothing wrong with the aircraft. I assume it was noted and Air Canada maintenance said everything looks good. And, I mean, they probably need to, needed to change out a few seat cushions. Because, that might wow. be true. Yeah. yeah. So there's a maintenance log there probably somewhere, but not for what you think. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go to an incident where there's definitely a maintenance log for this one. This was a goal flight that was looked like to be holding at the end of the runway, waiting to depart and adding power to the engines. And it added pieces of the runway onto its horizontal stabilizer. Yeah, it looks like the runway just kind of gave up, said no. I don't want to deal with this. And it just departed the ground and entered the horizontal stabilizer, unfortunately, creating quite a bit of mess behind the aircraft. The runway is is in pieces. And 
this happens. We've seen this before. It'll happen again. But usually you don't get video like this of it happening unless it's like a – I believe the last time I saw this, I think it happened. I'm pinging a memory from like 15 years ago. Didn't this happen in a Mythbusters episode when they used the Kalita 747 and it ripped up a piece of the runway? Or am I making that up? It probably happened. Okay. That sounds like something that would happen. Or a Top yeah, Gear episode. Yeah. Something. Yeah, something, something like that. In one something. of these shows I've watched with the, uh, a freighter 747 chopped up a bunch of the runway when they were doing some sort of thing. Pretty sure that happened. A Mythbusters episode where they were talking about like driving in a car in back of a running engine. Yes. Is what that what I recall. So now we'll, we'll track down that. And if we can track down the episode, it'll go in the show notes. Okay. It is time for our weekly check-in with the venerable or not so venerable Pratt & Whitney 1100G engine. Oh, it's still bad. This week's news comes to us from Cebu Pacific Airlines, which will ground up to 20 aircraft next year as it seeks to mitigate engine issues and its efforts include not growing as fast as they wanted to. Slightly related news, possibly, probably related news. Air Arabia has chosen engines for its incoming A320neos. And Jason, I will give you one guess as to which engines they have not chosen. Man, I have a feeling Pratt and Whitney probably didn't come out on top this time. They did not come out on top. Ah. Arabia has, in fact, chosen the CFM Leap 1A engines to power their A320neo family aircraft. Yeah, probably a, a, yeah. a prudent choice. Probably. So we talked about the launch of the reinvention of Mexicana in the context of we absolutely did not understand why they're doing this, what they're trying to do, and basically thinking that the Mexican president is trying to kill off Aero Mexico somehow. Mm -hmm. Well, they're not going to do it with the 737-800s that they had initially planned to do it with. They're going to start with a Embraer 145? No. That doesn't no. sound right. There's no worse aircraft that they could – I mean, maybe like some sort of old turboprop, but an E-145, this is like some sort of joke, right? They're painting it. The ah. registration on the aircraft, as shown in the photograph in the paint hanger, is X-Ray Alpha Victor Golf Quebec. And it says Mexicana on the side. So – Oh, man. They couldn't even I find like some old E-170 or something. And E-145 is just insulting to everyone involved. And they've got quite the route network mapped out. You can check. I don't know if we've talked about this, but we've begun a new weekly series on the Flight Radar 24 blog that includes updates from five separate regions around the world each month. So, so each month sees an update for all five regions. And this week's is the focus on Latin America. And we certainly talk about the route plan for Mexicana. Whether or not that actually comes to fruition, Totally different story, but you can see where they want to fly on the blog this week. So there'll be a link in the show notes there. Well, at least an E-145 won't pose much of a threat to Aeromexico. <laughs> Let's talk about a more capable aircraft, a newer Embraer. The E-195E2 is now certified at London City for the steep approach, the hey. five and a half degree approach rather than the standard three degree approach. The largest aircraft to go. be ever certified for the steep approach into London City. And I, I originally did not know this. I thought, oh, you know, the A318 has to be the biggest. And now this has just uh, overtaken that award for largest aircraft now that the A318 uh, rest in peace at BA. No, the E195 E2 oh, is actually significantly uh, bigger than the A318. So this is actually uh, newsworthy. There you go. The... Trials that we talked about a couple weeks ago, where Boeing's flying a 737 MAX 10 around and having a NASA DC-8 fly behind it as part of research into what is the chemical composition of SAF contrails compared to JET-1A contrails, how do they differ, what's going on there? Well, we've got the first results. And as it turns out, those contrails generated from the burning of SAF seems to be positive. Sustainable aviation fuel seems to have lower soot emissions, which are important, 
and also a reduction in particulate emissions and ice crystals and contrails. So an interesting initial findings, and we'll have much more as these final reports come out. Yeah, this is good news. This article comes to us from Runway Girl Network, which is oddly the only place I've seen this article published so far. But they pull out a quote from the report that says the soot emissions from the SAF are dramatically and noticeably different than with Jet A1. And that's a great result. So they're not mincing words there. The words dramatically and noticeably are not tossed around by scientists willy-nilly. That's some pretty firm statement there. They still have to, and I quote, work through the data for probably the next year to really put out a final report. But initially, this is great proof that SAF isn't just marketing nonsense. For the most part, there are different types of sustainable aviation fuels. Not all are great. But in this case, it seems pretty proof positive that SAF is a great stepping stone to something better because it's what we can do right now. Yeah. The feedstock remains the key to how sustainable, quote unquote, SAF is. Yes. Um, so that'll be interesting to see how well things move forward. We come to the part of the show where we quickly move through things that Jason wants to talk about purely because they kind of sort of rhyme. How often do you get to say SAS A350 to Moss? right? They're almost the same letters. But <laughs> <laughs> Malaysian Air will be taking one of the A350s that SAS has shed throughout bankruptcy. I just uh. thought that's interesting. <laughs> Malaysian Air has an eclectic fleet, let's say. They, they've got a lot of airplanes from a lot of different operators, but now SAS will be one of those A350s, which is disappointing because I really liked SAS's A350, and I'm much more likely to fly SAS than sure. Malaysian Air, which is, uh, eh, what are you going to do? But it, it's good to see they, they got a home and they're not just sitting in the desert anymore. Yeah. So that aircraft was formally registered SERSB and has now been re-registered into a Malaysian registration and has flown from Victorville to Kuala Lumpur. So they got the airplane. Hey, I've been on that airplane. That's awesome. There you 2021, go. 2021, I flew it from Newark to Stockholm. So I, I have a vested interest in this story that I didn't know about. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. What else we got? Wait, this is my section. I'll keep on going. Ita, it's Italy's favorite airline, took delivery of its first A321neo, distinctly not an A321neo LR, which is interesting because I thought they were. But oddly, it has a cabin that you would think would be an LR, but it's not. It's just a 321neo. It has a full fat premium business class, a very nice looking business class, a full premium economy, an extra legroom cabin and an economy cabin, of course. So it's really a three and a half cabin aircraft, but it's not flying to uh, destinations that you would often see a 321neo fly over the Atlantic like Dulles or to Boston or even Newark. Ian, do you know what the, the first destination of their brand new aircraft is? I know it was supposed to be Tel Aviv. It's not anymore. It's a London Heathrow. So Ah, yes. Yeah. The, the old yeah. four class. To be fair, Singapore operates the A350 between London and Milan, I think. Something like that. No, no. It was, and, sorry. It was Copenhagen. I, I'm still stuck on the last story. It was Copenhagen. And Iberia flies whatever they have between yeah. Madrid and London, which often includes – it used to include an A340-600, these days an A350. But this is a an aircraft that really won't be flying more than maybe three to four hours and has – a cabin that you would expect to, to see on a long-haul flight for 12 hours is just a bit confusing, I would say, but I really want to get on board. Well, off to London you go. Okay. Or Rome first, I guess. Either way. Either way. In the air right now is the first 787 flight to land in Antarctica. See, I said we would touch every continent, and I, I meant it. It took us a while to get there, but we did it. Qantas has flown sightseeing flights to Antarctica, but has not landed there. But now Norse is on its way, carrying scientists and equipment for the Norwegian Polar Institute to the Troll Airfield, which we've talked about many times and had the folks from Troll on the podcast. So if you want to know what the airfield is like and how to run an airport in Antarctica, you can listen to that episode, which we've linked to in the show notes. But today, the 787 will land in Antarctica for the first time. So that's a neat little milestone. And congratulations to Norse for making that happen. 
Yeah. Interesting to see that their A350s would be pressed into that kind of service. Very fun. 787s. 787. Sorry. There you go. But yeah, maybe that's the spare aircraft they told us that they, they always maybe. keep around. Yeah. yeah. Well, now they're keeping it very far away. <laughs> it will not be ready for the next yeah. flight at a JFK. Not, not be ready. And we end the show with just an incredibly beautiful airplane. Qantas Link's first A220-300 has been painted. The aircraft will bear the permanent registration VHX4A. That's a weird one. And is in just an incredible, incredible livery featuring the kind of continuing the Qantas Flying Art Series that was launched in 1994 when they unveiled their first indigenous livery aircraft, which was the 747 Wanala Dreaming. This continues that series and is just just an absolutely beautiful aircraft. A hundred painters, a hundred and thirty stencils were needed to replicate the design over two weeks, and the aircraft features over twenty thousand individual dots. The most complex livery Airbus has ever completed on the A220. So very cool. It has not yet been delivered, so we will follow that one closely when it begins to make its way to Australia from Montreal. Yeah. And this one is actually destined for Qantas Link to replace its 717 fleet. So it's not technically a Qantas aircraft. And I think it's the first Qantas Qantas Link aircraft to be uh, adorned in this particular series of special liveries. And I just love that they went so far as to even paint the Wi-Fi radome hump on the top of the aircraft. A lot of airlines leave that out, but they went to that full extent and they painted it really shows some thought here. A lot of airlines don't. Some airlines do. I find it particularly interesting when when Spirit paints its Wi-Fi radome yellow, even though the rest of the plane isn't yellow, because they're anticipating <laughs> they'll the eventually, eventually all be, be yellow, yellow. Right? But in this case, Qantas Link got to it from day one. And definitely check it out because it is a stunner. There you go. All right. That is episode 242 of AvTalk. We hope you've enjoyed the show. That was a lot of stuff. And we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And we will be, next week we'll have an episode, but it'll be an abbreviated episode, assuming no further horse shenanigans happen due to the Thanksgiving holiday. Stay with us. We'll be back next week with an episode nonetheless. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.